Hi. Welcome to Pints and Politicos. My name is Tim. I'm your host. And on this episode, we have a professor of urban politics from Southern Connecticut State University, Professor Jonathan Ward. All right. Hi, and welcome to Pints and Politicos. This is the first episode. Uh, I am here with Dr. Jonathan Wharton, a professor at Southern Connecticut State University, a professor in urban politics. Yes. Uh, one of my professors. He's the one that actually got me into the political science department at Southern Connecticut State University. I was originally a history major. And I had a chance to convert you, at least, to see this side of politics. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start with a little bit about you, Professor Wharton. Well, I mean, I, I uh, was born in New York City, um, where my parents both met. Uh, when they were going to grad school at Columbia, and they moved up here to Connecticut, and I grew up there in West Hartford. Um, so I have been in and out of Connecticut for, for many years now, but I left Connecticut for uh, uh, going to Howard University when I was about 18 years old, and then uh, stayed in Washington, D.C. for about seven years, and then lived in uh, New Jersey for uh, about a good 15 years, and then moved back home uh, about four years ago. So... Uh, you know, I've always had a love affair with Connecticut to begin with, but uh, you know, it's good to kind of get away and go to places like Washington D.C. and even in New Jersey for the years I did. Uh, how long have you been a uh, professor? I've been teaching now. Well, at, at your alma mater, uh, I'm going into my fifth year now. Uh, and prior to that, I was teaching at Stevens Institute of Technology for nearly a dozen years. And um, altogether, I've been teaching almost close to uh, 20 years. So wow, yeah, on the tenure track now, almost nine. So yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So what is what is urban politics? What is Well, so it's it's interesting. Within political science, as you know, very well as a student, there are all these subfields that exist. Uh, international relations, as you know, and comparative politics gets all the attention. Uh, if you're lucky, American politics makes kind of a good distant two or three in terms of interest. So it's really kind of a subfield within a subfield. Technically, it's American politics, but it's within a small niche. Um, technically, it's state and local government. There are areas in urban politics within that, and I kind of try to cover my bases in both areas. Um, and so urban politics at least examines the outcomes of, uh, and the problems in politics that exist in city town halls. Um, and so oftentimes a lot of comparative analysis has taken place. My specialty is more in urban development, so I am very interested in urban renewal, urban redevelopment, tax initiatives, grants, um, zoning changes, that kind of thing. Um, and so I look at it more from the purview of public policy analysis. I'm looking to see it comparative from one city to the next and how they do it. So how do you apply that in, uh, in New Haven? Easily. Um, this has been, you know, the, the lab, if you will, of, of urban development and certainly politics. Uh, you know, Isaac Jackson's book, you know, uh, is a legendary model city blues that, that examines New Haven. Robert Dahl's very well known for doing the same thing. Douglas Ray doing the same thing. Many political scientists, geographers, historians have looked at New Haven. And New Haven is interesting because it represents so many cities. It's not a big city, you know, in the sense of technically it's a secondary city in terms of population, um, but it's got the same kind of population dynamics in terms okay. of, uh, you know, um, if, if you look at this city, you'll see similar dynamics as it relates to diversity of populations and, and uh, certainly education levels and even home ownership levels. It's very similar to mirrors in a lot of other cities. Are there any projects in New Haven that are near and dear to you? As a matter of fact, I just came from a meeting here at City Hall down the street. Um, I'm involved with the Long Wharf uh, development plan uh, where they're redoing it. So for me, because I live down that way uh, by City Point, I'm very interested in what's going to happen with the future of Long Wharf. It's an ongoing saga of what to do about something like the Pirelli Tower. Okay. Then along the opening of the Canal Dock Boathouse, it just you know uh, opened up a couple weeks ago to 
how do we make it more bicycle friendly, more pedestrian friendly in that area? And it's a lot of acreage down there. Um, so it's going to be a big project, and that's something I'm, in fact, I'm presenting with a conference in Hartford in a few weeks on what's going on down there. Are you guys trying to move around the food trucks that are down there? It's going to be still an ongoing. It's still going to be something that they want, but they also want to expand like the food terminals. Um, they still want to do more with shopping districts. They want to have more of a marina down there on the waterfront. They also wanted to um, find better ways of connecting the train station as well, which okay. is something I have been stressing over and over again because it's <laughs> right on the backside and yet it's so cut off. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a great project. I'm glad to be a part of it, and it's awesome for me because it's not so much that I even live there, which I do, and I already study this. But it's also that you know I'm on the city plan commission right. as well, so that's great that at least I'm playing some some kind of role with this too, and and I'm getting right directly involved with this conference with the city planners. So let's talk Connecticut politics. Absolutely. Let's talk because it as of the recording of it this requires episode, a little more beer. Or something yeah, it does. <laughs> oh, and the other parts of, of the pints and politicos is is the pints, uh, and and Professor Wharton's favorite beverage here is the Two Roads Honey Spot IPA. Yes, love it. So we will be drinking that throughout the course of the episode. Yeah, shout out to Katie Kreischek. She's the one who actually turned me on to her local beer. You know Katie very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your, your colleague. So as of the recording of this episode, it is October 1st. It is in the middle of a huge governor's election in Connecticut, as well as every state and, and, and Senate representative. So uh, what are your feelings for uh, the top two on the ballot, Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanoski? I am amazed at how it turned out this way for both sides um, because Ned Lamont has run, you know, multiple yeah. times before for statewide office. So I was thinking back that, that you know, I thought that, you know, Susan Beiswitz was going to really try to wait, find a way to, to make an effort this time around because she's run before, obviously, for statewide office, has held statewide offices. So I thought she'd at least be a, a serious candidate before she folded in with Ned Lamont. Right. I also thought the same thing really of Drew, Mayor Drew. I know we spoke about that many times. I thought he had a good shot. Luke Bronin, I was fearful of because, you know, he hasn't finished out his term. Right. I, I actually find him to be an intriguing candidate. In some ways, he almost mirrors Cory Booker in, in some ways, and that was my prior research for a long time. I was studying his administration in, in Newark, New Jersey. So I thought Ned Lamont was kind of a a shock to me. I didn't think he was going to make as much progress as he did because I thought it was going to be more competitive, uh, more of a competitive race for the for the conventional and on the primary. Um, Joe Gannum, that you know, people were surprised he even made it beyond convention, let alone that you know he barely yeah. got twenty percent, and it was decided early. So for me, I was surprised by that. I was I surprised by Stefanowski. Um, in some ways, yes, I was um, because he did go around the convention. Um, and what I had said from the outset was there were really two significant camps. It was kind of the mayoral camps that kind right. of divide each other up, right? You had the Boughton and then you had the Herps, and they really are two very different types of Republicans. Um, you know, one's a little bit more aggressive, more assertive, uh, probably a little bit more conservative, you know, in terms of describing the, uh, uh, the Herps camp, whereas the Boughton camp tends to be more centrist in some areas, not in other areas, obviously, especially when it comes right. to immigration. But... One who tends to be, in some ways, not always tied to the party uh, in some respects. So there was this division, and even their egos are two very different people. You know, Mark Bowden's a very soft-spoken guy. Tim Herbst is, you know, very assertive and, and aggressive. And a lot of Republicans wanted that, shake things up on purpose up there. Right. Okay, so fine, you have that going on on that side. And then you have the three businessmen. 
And in the back of my head, gee, I thought if there's going to be any real splintering, it's going to be among these businessmen, but one of these three has got to take it out. But I did I think that that was going to be possible? Yes, I did. Early on, I did. And I told some of my friends, I said, I, I could see that among the three businessmen, he would stand out more. And it's not so much that he went around the convention, which he did, which they're still debating to this day in terms of how he did it and why and how. Right. Um, it was more that um, uh, it really fractured the party further because we originally had, what, 14, 15 candidates? Yeah. Went down to five, obviously, and two who petitioned for the primary. It's amazing. Um, so what do you think about Bob Stefanowski beating Mark Bowden, who was the, the party nominee out of convention? The endorsed one, yes. Yeah, the endorsed one. And he's, I think Stefanowski is the only candidate who actually beat a party nominee because on the Democrat side it was all party nominees down the line. Correct. And and Stefanowski sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah, you know the, the thing was that his strategy, and, and I did have a chance to speak with his campaign manager, and we actually got along really well. Um, Patrick Truman and I uh, got along very well. We've spoken about it several times. This was a strategy that was kind of decided, uh, certainly before convention, um, maybe even weeks, if not a month or so before convention. So it didn't surprise me that that was their intention. But you have to remember one thing. They did put the ads out early. They got the name recognition. They got the slogan out there way early before even some of the announced candidates did even said that they were going to run. Right. And so, uh, because of that, it gave it gave it gave him an advantage. He also put you know over two point five million dollars into this campaign. Um, you know, and so that was a big advantage because then he didn't take in any public financing. He didn't do much fundraising. Right. So, excuse me. So the thing was is that there were a couple of advantages that had him stand out among the other candidates. Put that on top of the fact that he was never an elected official prior. And if you saw the polls early on before the convention, there was an interest not just among Republicans, but even among independents and affiliated voters, which are the bulk of Connecticut right. voters, who wanted somebody who was not a career politician. You're left with him. Um, what do you think of some of the other candidates that didn't make it through the race? Yeah, I, I had a chance to really spend a lot of time with them. And I think I'm fortunate for several reasons. One, uh, yes, I teach this stuff, but also because, you know, as you know, I, I've been very involved here locally as a former chairman of the Republican Town Committee. Um, and I was also a delegate at the convention, so I got to know them through those channels. I also helped run the Nutmeg Republicans, which is kind of this young ragtag <laughs> <laughs> alternative Republican, the, almost independence. The Wharton wing of the Republican well, Party. I, I, you know, but, but they're a bunch of younger people who are concerned uh, about the politics in the state. And, and it's not just Republicans. And we meet often. And they did show up. I was impressed. A lot of Republican candidates did show up, uh, including the down ballot tickets. Um, we can go through the list if you want. I mean, because the personalities are just intriguing. Um, we can start with the Republicans if you don't mind. We can go down the oh, Democrats yeah. list. Since um, I spoke a little bit about the Dems, but uh, which one do you? I mean, I obviously described a little I bit mean, about Herps. Uh, I mean, my my hometown mayor, oh, Mark Loretti. Mark Loretti, yes. So he was intriguing um, among some of the nutmeg people, and even some of even the Republicans here in town. They already knew him. Yeah, he's got a well-known reputation. He was intriguing to most people because he's a backslapping kind of politician. He clicks very well. He can have a beer with you, which he did with me at the convention <laughs> uh, more than once. And uh, even at the Kurt Miller fundraiser, you know, I saw him you know, last month. He's a very engaging kind of person. But, of course, he's been in office for years. Right. And so the question comes up, you know, is 27, 28 years a Tw long enough time? It, I mean, it should be. Right. <laughs> and then you throw that in there, and that you know it's also a valley town. Is that is Shelton really representative of the entire? It is. It is not right. <laughs> and, and, and then on top of everything else, you know the FBI concerns. You know that he was investigated prior for and his staff. 
uh, for for uh, you know some some of the improprieties there at City Hall. But I will tell you, I thought he was incredible. I I liked him. I actually like him as as a person. His politics are are interesting, appealing, but I don't know if it's big enough for right the, the, the state. But he's he is he, if you look if you talk with him, he's a very engaging person. What do you think about his seeming like falling out between him and um, Bob Stefanowski in in the in the Hartford Current? That, I think that that was that was an issue, and uh, I I I you know I've been in a couple of those meetings as well since I've also been as you know working for Kurt Miller on the side, and there was concern about the Loretti right uh, problem. What do you do with him? And because he's very dynamic, he's very connected to the media. He certainly will make it known his positions and stances and issues and, and how you feel how he feels about you. Um, so that was, I think, kind of an off Broadway <laughs> piece to to the post primary. Uh, let's move on to. I mean, we talked about Mark Bowden, mm-hmm. mayor of Danbury, and Tim Herbst, of course, and Stemmerman. <sighs> I, I tried liking him. <laughs> I think a lot of people tried liking him. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how the Hartford Current came out to endorse him. Yeah. And um, and and at the end, you saw the last two or three weeks, especially in the valley, because I go to the valley quite often. There was a lot of signage for him, and a lot yeah, of interest were, in him. There were a lot of Stemmerman signs. Yeah, but like Sevanowski, he had a lot of consultants from out of state. Yeah, probably even more. Um, and matter of fact, I knew some of them who were from New Jersey, and I just didn't see much of a ground game beyond certain pockets. Also, as an individual, I, yeah, again. I, I shared a drink with him a little bit for a time at the Schubert. I just wasn't enthralled with him. You know, everybody's like, oh, he's a brainiac. He's very smart. But I didn't see the charisma there. Maybe right. that's just me. I talk it out with some of my friends. They're like, oh, you're not giving him a chance. I just didn't I, – I didn't know if he had much of a shot. Um, who else but he had was... a lot of money, obviously. <laughs> still does. Yeah. <laughs> People are still going for him for money. Who was also on the Republican side? Mm. Ol- Olenovsky? Um it was so Upsitnik. Upsitnik, yeah. Steve Upsitnik. Now, now this is a fascinating case of what happens with public financing, and it's like a textbook case example of what can happen. Um, interestingly, he was trying to file for public financing, obviously. Right. He, you know, he kept on missing deadlines partly because of all the requirements, and there were these concerns surrounding, you know, the support he got from this kind of nonprofit side group that was helping him out. You can't get endorsements from these organizations. Yeah, you're not allowed to I'm- even communicate. Full disclosure: I'm the treasurer for a campaign, and all that yeah public financing stuff is a huge pain in the ass. Has to be, and and any any ilk of it, any connection with it, will be investigated, which it was several times. Yeah, because if there's any communication taking place between both camps, that's going to cause red flags for the right you're, state. You're you're not allowed to communicate. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to coordinate in any way. Like exactly. And there's actually a hotline that they set up for yep. pub- public comments to be investigated. Correct. And so for several instances, their dialing, filing deadline kept on getting pushed back. So unfortunately, he didn't get the money excuse me, until weeks before the primary. Well, how can you get your name out there? Yeah. I think he really faced the hurdle. Now, I will tell you, a lot of my friends, especially the nutmeg Republicans, loved Upsitnik. As a matter of fact, I will tell you right now, probably four or five of them actually helped run this campaign. They were involved with it directly. Oh, okay. And I was really taken back. They were a little upset with me because initially our delegation from New Haven supported Walker. That's something else we should talk about. Yeah, and then uh, we went with Herp's second vote and third vote. And the thought was, is that why can we get more people of, Sit- of Sitnik? A part of it was he didn't have quite the name recognition. 
he wasn't quite in any degree he probably could have. And quite frankly, he was always touting about his business, yes, with Siri and everything to do with right. technology, and certainly that he was a you know, a Navy guy and certainly did the, you know, you heard everything about his biography. But we were still looking for more nuts and bolts in his plans and his programs, and it wasn't quite there. But I will tell you, as a person, very connectable. Like, you'd be surprised. I, again, I, I should shared a couple beers with him. We connected very, very well. But there was not enough, I think, policy substance in, in many instances beyond his great biography. Now, as far as David Walker, uh, very intriguing guy. Clearly, he's worked for both sides you know, uh, of the aisle for Republicans and Democrats and the presidential administrations. Uh, there was some concern as to whether his, his background, uh, whether he's a credible candidate, because he, you know, he was lieutenant governor a while back with Boughton. And of course, they had a little fallout back and forth back in the day. And people were saying, you know, is, is Walker really a formidable candidate because he's never won before? Um, but terrific guy. Um, get along guy. I had lunch a couple times with him. Um, the one quirk I will tell you is that um, sometimes he, he would make little gaffes here and there. You know, I remember this one quotable where, you know, he was at a debate and I was actually the, uh, uh, the moderator along with Gary Rose. You know Professor Rose, of course, yeah. from Sacred Heart, the well-known, really Connecticut professor. And we were both kind of taken back saying, that, you know, well, I'm from, you know, the nice side of Bridgeport. <laughs> and and I remember there was a student in the, in the back of the audience there, you know, for the college Republicans, and he was actually a local kid from Bridgeport from high school. And he actually said, well, there are other <laughs> nice sides of Bridgeport. <laughs> and even the not-so-nice sides, what are you going to do with it when you're governor? Right. And the whole room just went, woof. Yeah. You know, he tends to make these kind of gaffes that people kind of scratch their head on. And I heard this from a lot of my friends saying that's one of the reasons why they weren't kind of 100% on board with him. He's got a little Texas accent, I know, because he's from there and all. Right. But um, – you know, he knew he, and he would also try to pick fights sometimes, like with Aaron Stewart, for example, and other people, and certainly with Tim Herbst, they fought it out. They they had violations against each other. They right. were trying to yeah. go against each other with the state on their election violations. So he, if you if you really wanted to start a fight with him, he'd start a fight right back with you. So <laughs> there was this concern. But why did our delegation and others support him? I think it was because again, somebody who was an outside person, he was clearly comptroller, you know, comptroller for years. You know, which I love the general accountability, I mean, government accountability office right. in, in Washington, which he was the head of. I mean, if you're a policy junkie, which I am proud of saying I am, I'm not a partisan, <laughs> you respect the GAO. You know, they're almost like the Moses of policy wonks. They write out these proposals and plans, and many people follow it. And so I was ecstatic about his candidacy. But it just, he did not get that, you know, 15% to get out of convention, unfortunately. Right. And he folded in early. Yeah, and um, another name we can't forget, obviously, is Lamage, Peter Lamage, too. Yep. Who's run for statewide office prior in several instances. I don't think we're going to, I think he's going to still come back again. I, there's this big interest among some <laughs> saying that, you know, they really want to see somebody like him again because he's pro uh, gun, you know, certainly pro guns all, all the way. Um, and he has certainly uh, made it known. And a lawyer. Um, I, I actually like Peter as a person. I, I've got to know him, especially when I was chairman. He could always come to our fundraisers, always supported us. I really like him. I you'd be surprised. I don't agree with him <laughs> on a lot of his policy stances at all. He knows it. He always make a joke of it. Oh, it's the professor. You're gonna now endorse me. It was kind of always a lot of fun when he always pick on me about that. But he's he's a he's a great individual. The problem was he had a lot of outside money. Right. And many of them were lawyers from New York, as you know. So there was some concern about that. But there were a lot of people on the inside from Hartford who really supported his campaign. I was surprised, especially among the Senate and House staffers. Um, so let's run down. Let's run down the the Democratic ticket that mm. that could have been. Um, of course, you got Lamont at the top of the ticket. Right. Uh, he had a failed bid for the Senate. Yes. 
Um, he's a he's a professor at Central. Yes, he is. Yep, he's been teaching there for a while. Um, and let's see. You also had Susan Beisowitz, who ran for governor, then shifted to. Uh, and she's been running for governor. Yeah, I mean, I was I've been going through the old Decepno papers, and you still see references to, you know, a dozen years ago when she was trying to run. So she's been trying to run. I think the thing is, is that you know, Hartford Current had said it called me up about a couple months ago before the primary said. What is Susan Weisswitz excited? What was it? A charisma problem. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, why can she not effectively connect with people sometimes? Um, you know, she is just not the most charismatic person in, in the world, from what I hear. I've never met her, so I wouldn't know. But I constantly heard this when she was there in Middletown. So that's what's been a concern. Some people say the same thing about Ned Lamont, that he's got a, co- a connective. Yeah, he's too. kind of like a I, I won't I won't quote the president directly, yeah. but he's low energy. Like yeah, he seems like um, he seems very academic. He, he can he can come across as as a bit of an academic uh, wonk. I I agree. I, I actually had a chance, as you know, I did the NPR you know interviews and follow ups afterwards uh, with him after after the show, and then of course I got to know him through the chambers debates and certainly the debates here in New Haven. So I've gotten to get to know him a little bit more. Um, you know, you know the thing with him is that, hmm, how can I say this? <laughs> he knows he's he's not the most yeah. energetic person in the world, so he gets that about right. it. Um, but he tends to be a little hokey, and he kind of <laughs> cashes in on that and makes light of it, and really enjoys that. Right. Even with his little quirky expressions. Yeah. Um, and so he 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 tends to like that. I think also the fact that he's got a lot of money. You know, he's got, he has quite the apparatus. He was able to get the unions to kind of line up. Right. Uh, and he's gotten a lot of support from the cities. So I think that helped him out. Uh, one has to wonder as well, somebody like Tony Harp's support going that way early on. Yeah. As opposed to, let's say, Ganim. And, of course, she made a good point. I endorsed him when he's run before. That might have helped. Especially in a city like New Haven, which is overwhelming Democrat, and they show up when they show up. Right. If they'll show up next month. Um, let's see. Who are the guys that didn't make it? We got Luke Bronin. Yes. I think Luke Bronin will, will probably, you know, we'll see him again, I bet. Yeah, he'll definitely. He's, he's still in his, what, or late 30s, early yeah. 40s. Like, I was kind of hoping for a Luke Bronin, <laughs> a Luke Bronin, uh, Herps, you know, duel. Like, I thought that'd be awesome. Um, oh, you have, uh, the Democrats have their crazies too, Lee Whitnam. Oh, yes. Well, she kind of came out of nowhere because of what happened to her <laughs> being dragged out on stage there like that, or dragged off a stage. Yeah, that that was that was a fluke. Yeah, uh, I actually heard her speak before she had been dragged off a stage in a debate. Uh, she was at a candidate forum in Orange, mm. and she started out the forum. She was the first candidate to speak, and she just railed against these judges and the judicial system, which she doesn't like. And then when the other candidates came up and spoke, and they gave their you know stump speeches. Uh, she demanded more time to give her some speech because she wasn't aware that she was supposed to give one. She was just oh. sort of giving out a manifesto, if you will. Right. Um, and the person moderating the uh, forum, you and I both know Jimmy Tickey. Yes. Uh, he was very upset about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, he would be. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, she is. She was definitely out of, like, Crazyville. Yep. But there were a lot of candidates, I think, on both sides that, that were like this. I mean, we had a couple crazy ones, too, and I can't remember their names, like Peter Thelman, I think, and a couple others. I mean, I think both sides had that. I kind of listed out. I have, like, a list, a laundry list of all the candidates because it was almost 30 candidates. 
Yeah. It was unbelievable. We had the the Democratic former mayor from West Haven. Or West Hartford. West Hartford. My, my, West Hartford. my former mayor, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Jonathan Harris, I a lot of people thought he had a chance. But, you know, he came out a little late to the game. Yeah. And he didn't raise enough money. And I think it was a name recognition factor, too. Right. The other factor, too, with him is that he's very much a centrist. Um, you know, and, and in some ways even more conservative than, than some Republicans are. Uh, and some people thought, and I did, I was one of these people, that he was going to gain more interest even among centrists or on both sides of the aisle. He would be a bipartisan candidate. Exactly. That was the thought. He was that way in West Hartford in some respects. So, um, you know, he's not liberal. Yeah. In, in like, let's say, Drew or, you know, like Mayor Drew. Which is interesting because his stump speech, he calls himself the progressive problem solver. Yes. Yes. <laughs> True, but he's also very proud of doing a lot of belt tightening, yeah, a lot of reforms, and he's got no problem working with the other side of the aisle, right? Uh, but he just did not have the fundraising ability, and I, I, I felt so unfortunate because you know he had reached out to me a couple times because I was hopeful of connecting with some of my old neighbors from West Hartford on purpose to help out, but by then it was too late. Yeah, I mean literally three days later is when he he packed up shop after he contacted me a couple times that weekend, but. That's the name of Paul. That's just the nature of politics. It works this way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about one party taking control of the state house or the state? I think it's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of which chamber will get that. Right. And it's leaning probably more towards the Senate. Yeah. Depending on what happens with some of these races, including somebody like Pam Sineski, for example, in Milford and uh, West Haven. You know, she's a House uh, rep right now and she's running for the Senate. And so the big question will be, you know, in a seat that. In a seat, in some of these seats where they could switch easily, yeah. uh, you know, who's who's going to win this out? Right. Because right now it's it's split, obviously, you know, fifty fifty. But of course, the Democrats technically have it because of course the lieutenant governor, right, is obviously a Democrat. So that would split the ticket. They split the the vote. So that's why. So I could see that easily happening in the Senate more than probably the House. Um, there was a there was a special election uh, in February. In the, oh, in the Stratford district, in uh, the 120th, I believe, mm-hmm. Phil Young beat the Republican incumbent who had been there forever. That seat has been Republican for like 20 some odd years. Yes. Um, and now he's got to run a second election right. in a year. And and I, I've talked to Phil Young and we're probably going to have him on the show at some point because he's a cool guy. But like, what what do you think must it feel like to run two campaigns, competitive campaigns right. within six months of each other? Well, you know, that's this is what happens when you have these empty seats and you have to fill them. And one would hope that you can kind of lean on your prior donors. Right. Even though it's only been six months away. And so the, the thought is is that, and I'm sure he's putting a lot of pressure on the Democratic uh, you know, party here, you know, the state party, to say, don't forget me. You know, I'm the one that brought you the victory here <laughs> in that tough race. And I'm sure he's reminding them over, over and over again. Uh, it, look, it happens. Um, it's just unfortunate that he's got to do more fundraising now right. than, than probably what he had to do before. Yeah. Um, it's one thing when it's a special election because the turnout is exceedingly low. Um, and I think you saw that, right, where, I mean, generally for these, for these state seats, you're lucky to get maybe, I'm going to be generous, a third. Yeah. It might be even less. It's closer to, a, you know, a fourth. And then in a special election, it's going to be the teens. Yeah. So he needs to realize and knows that, you know, it's going to have to be double that number. Right. For turnout, and he's actually he's got a Republican challenger, and he's got a challenger on the left too. Good point. He's got um, Good point. there's a petitioning candidate, Prez Palmer, who is yep. also a Democrat. Yes, 
who is running against him. And I actually saw the debate they had on News Channel 12. Oh, I missed that. And, uh, yeah, Perez is definitely not pulling any punches. Mm-hmm. So Phil's getting it from both sides. He is. And, and you know, one thing is also a wake-up call in many ways when you think about it for the Democratic Party. What direction are they going? You're right. seeing this trend, obviously, in New York and in Boston with, obviously, the congressional candidates winning. Some ways, even Johanna Hayes, I've been saying this over and over again because clearly she's not a glassman. Um, and so this is an interesting trend why it's taking place in Congress. But I would also like to know what's going on in these state legislative races where you're seeing the divisions within the party right? at, at the primary level. Um, I, now, you know, your illustrious professor, Art Paulson, you know, who, who retired <laughs> a couple of years ago, we both, you know, enjoy a lot, who's our former chairman, would tell you it's, it's classic political, you know, realignment, that political parties go through this every 20 years, and so this is an apple one generation taking over for the next. But I would counter and say, okay, fine, this could be a cyclical factor, but to the point where you're seeing this across the board nationwide. Yeah. And you have to wonder it now going out the state level in terms of what you're bringing up with Young. Is this a trend they're going to see for a while? And how long will this last? Because one of the big debates I will offer is, you know, and you already know this since I stress this all the time in my classes, this is really a fight between the boomers yeah. and Generation Y. You know, uh, my generation, we're out of it. We don't have the numbers. <laughs> I don't know if we're really as organized as we could or should be. Um, but the data is proving that between you and the boomers, you guys got to fight this out. And right. you're seeing that right now with these candidates. So as much as people are talking about, oh, it's an ideological foundation of fighting within the party for Democrats. I think it's also a generational fight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you get the 20, 30 something fighting it out among the, you know, uh, 60, 70, 80 something. Yeah. Yeah. Saying, you know, move aside, you know, and at what point will they? They probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> They're just going to hold on just out of spite. I mean, and that goes, and that's on a national level too. I mean, this is the oldest Congress Indeed. that we've ever had. The average age, I think, of a congressman is like sixty-two or sixty-three. It's amazing how much in the, especially in the uh, House Democratic. Yeah. Staff. I mean, Clyburn, you know, obviously um, Nancy Pelosi. You can go yeah. down the list. There's so many of them. And even the chairs of the committees are well, even, even ranking voters. Rosa Delora. That's true. Right. There were a lot of them. Jimmy Tiki will, will tear me apart as he tried to <laughs> with WNPR about that competition. And I brought up Brian Anderson <laughs> as somebody who, who was competitive. He said he didn't even have a chance, which is true. He didn't. And, of course, maybe Rosa's very good at, at her constituent services. I won't deny that. But how many years should a lawmaker stay yeah. in office? Is 30 enough? 40? 50? <laughs> Well, I think the average term for, for the House is, what, 30 years? Yeah, And the is. Senate's even longer? Right. And the point of that New York Times article about Delora was that she's the longest-serving one who hasn't had any competition, primary competition. Right. That's what the Times had her pegged at. Yeah. And so one could argue, is that because she's very good at constituent services, or is it because she's got quite the war chest? I think it's both. Right. You know, she she does some fundraising, but she doesn't that so much for herself because she wins very well on her own Yeah. for the primaries, obviously, and she knocks out anybody else who would even want to do it. But also because um, you know, she, her, her husband's a big consultant. They have a lot of money. They can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And she's got the name recognition because, of course, her family. Very well known here in New Haven, even before she was a congresswoman. <laughs> so this is, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen really with both parties. As far as the Republicans and what's going on internally there, I will offer this. There is also a generational struggle. And that's not being discussed enough here in Connecticut. Uh, it's obvious, similar to the Democrats, because we talk about this. You go to the Democratic town committees, you go to the Republican town committees, it's yeah. a generation gap. It's pretty much everybody over 60 mm-hmm. uh, that are there, and it's few people really under, let's say, 50. 
Yeah. Uh, or even under 40. And so you have that generation gap, but there's something else to it as well. And I'm, I'm trying to sort it out and maybe even explain it. Because we've not had a governor in there for years, there's really no one true leader of the party, right? By default, it should be the party chairman, Jared Romano. Right. But then there's some internal factions that kind of don't see it that way and oftentimes debate. And you see this, obviously, when you have a governorless, you know, party right yeah. now. And so what's happened is that you see the division between somebody like Senator Fasano, obviously, and certainly Representative Themis, where they're kind of taking up the mantle separately. So that you're having these kind of you know internal divisions within the party, which is natural to happen. Now Savinowski's stuck with inheriting all this <laughs> and finding a way to lead. And, and that it's got a lot of challenges to it. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the fall. Do you think, or so not to make predictions or anything mm-hmm. like that, but do you think that the Democrats or, or the Republicans have a better chance of taking over the state house? Um, I, I think that the the uh, Democrats will. I mean, that's that's more or less what the Cosm Winston saying, but but close. Yeah, I think it'll be close. Yeah, I mean, I know that obviously Themis is looking forward to, uh, you know, Clarence is looking to, uh, uh, you know, see a, a takeover. It's not to say it can happen, but I think it's going to be less likely in the House than the Senate. And that's what some indicators are saying. Let's talk some 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 policy. Sure. Um. So you said that urban politics is one of your is is your forte. What do you think is being done in urban politics, or what do you think isn't being done in urban politics that needs to be done in Connecticut at least? In Connecticut, a number of different areas, um, and I guess I can speak more towards urban redevelopment, if you will, and I can get more into the politics as well. Okay. In terms of policies, you know, our cities here in Connecticut are not up to the times. If you compare other cities, clearly we have issues with public transit. Yep. It's a state-run system. It's not locally run. There's no real, um, you know, uh, accountability for, for the agency, locally speaking at least. And they're not responsive to often local concerns and issues. And I can certainly say this is a bus rider since I take it often, as you know. <laughs> I will say that you can look to some examples around here in terms of what some cities have done, like New Haven with bike lanes. At least they're, con- you know, long enough contingent bike lanes, which is great. But then you don't see that in, let's say, cities like Hartford. Right. Or in Bridgeport. Uh, and then in terms of pedestrian friendliness, I mean, certainly in New Haven, it's, it's pretty walkable here. But then you go to a city like Stanford, and it's not. Like, you go around downtown. Yeah. The lights are long. They're wide <laughs> boulevards. They're difficult to cross. They don't have the best signage. And the traffic calming is often an issue, especially with 95 being right there. Right. So I think each of these cities all pose their problems as it relates to urban development. Um, you see some cities where it's a viable downtown. I mean, Crown Street right here, you know, not far from here, obviously is always hopping, even on weekdays, which is right. great, right? You got the blues club, you got the karaoke, you got, you know, you got bar, all these great restaurants that's always you know, packed, no matter what time of the year. Whereas you go to Hartford, you're lucky to find maybe two or three places are open, right. except for maybe Pratt Street, with some restaurants that still open past five o'clock. Right. Then you go to Stanford, they have, you know, the Thursday events and the Friday events, and it's packed, people are there. But you go to downtown Bridgeport, it's not quite the same. So the technical term is cityscape. You don't see the viable kind of cityscape in, in some areas of some cities and then it's missing in others or it's not all together in, in its downtown form in some of these cities. So I would hope that one day, whoever the governor is going to be, they would really make this a mission of saying we need to have our cities come back. Right. And I think that's going to take a lot of initiatives to see how other cities have done it outside of Connecticut. And I'm thinking about specific examples, maybe in the tri-state area, 
you know, you look at a place like where I lived in for years, Jersey City, where they're yeah. able to do it with restaurant rows and having people being a part of it and being engaged with it. Or maybe seeing what's going on in White Plains, how they completely redeveloped their areas and built a lot of shopping districts. You can look at a lot of these examples and say, okay, come on, Connecticut, we can do this. One thing I think we also underutilize is that train station. When they redevelop that area around there, that's going to be significant because we could really make that part of downtown viable again. And so right. that's something that we need to hone in on as a city. And that's just a New Haven. You look at these other cities, I'm glad they have now the Hartford line. <laughs> but we need to do more with that too. <laughs> but that's where I think the problems are yeah. in, in terms of policy uh, and, and economic development. As far as the politics, a lot of students and scientists come to me and some people say, we don't have enough competition. It's the Democrats that pretty much run shop. And specifically, uh, even a city like New Haven, the unions and Maine endorsed candidates already from the beginning. So how do you get it to be more formidable competition, not just within the Democratic Party, but even the right. Republican Party or a third party or even a fourth party? I'd like to see more of that take shape in a city like New Haven and other cities. And people are hungry for that. How do Republicans compete in big cities? Because a lot of cities in the country do tend to be more liberal and they always vote Democrats for the most part. So how do Republicans compete in big metropolitan areas? They have to find a way of saying on message and stressing the need for local issues. They need to find a way, and I, I tried doing this as chairman. We had a platform that we put together, we advertised it, we posted it on our website, and articulating some of our main concerns relating to tax reform, property concerns and issues, what to do at city hall meetings, those kinds of things. So we put that together. Somehow there's got to be a way of stressing this and putting it out there to the media so that they're aware that we're not just about Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, that there's more to us than just what's going on in Washington that we have no control over. Um, the uh, town committees need to find a way of articulating this and making it known and saying, okay, here are the hardcore issues. We've heard this and we want this out there. And so um, I would say that and also find better ways of fundraising, finding candidates. It's tough to find candidates. A lot of people generally don't want to run for office, yeah. let alone don't want to run for office under the Republican ticket. <laughs> so, because uh, I oftentimes speak with. Uh, some Democrats, and they said it's tough. It's not easy to find candidates. It's not, and the and at least from what I know, the Democrats have struggled. They've they've tried to fill every House race, right? And I think they did it, but in some of the candidates aren't a hundred percent, you know, the best choice, right? Or it was difficult to find someone who would want to run for that seat because, at least in the Valley, there's a lot of Republican-controlled seats that have been that way forever, and exactly. not everyone can be Phil Young. Although it's fascinating in the Valley, at least, even going down to Stratford, the majority of, of voters are Democrats. They're not even Republicans. Yeah. But it's just they tend to be more Reagan Democrats, you know, yeah. where they're, they're just conservative in various areas. And so I think there is an interest on purpose there to see another party through. Very yeah. different than here in New Haven, where it's clearly a problem, is a concern. And at least in the, in the conversations that I've had, we've tried to steer at least a lot of the campaign operations towards the center to the unaffiliated voters right. who at least we don't think vote Republican all the time. Like it's, it's hard to find out what unaffiliateds want as a group because they don't have, they're the kind of loose band of gall. Yeah. You know, they, they've been scattered all around. They've been nomads and they're not hundred percent, which is why, as you know, I stress all the time that, you know, you should affiliate yourself with the party so you can be involved in the primary. Yeah. You can go to the fundraisers. You get to connect with the politicians themselves. How else can you know except to be a part of a party? And that's why I'm always stressing it over there at Southern. I don't care which party, really. As long <laughs> as you're in it and you can shake things up and find ways of being involved and being engaged, that's all that matters. But 
in reality, as you know, uh, you know, many Generation Y, and now we're seeing this in Z, are overwhelmingly independent and affiliated voters. And I don't think that's yeah. just so much because of the politics. I think that's kind of the nature of what's going on institutionally, right? Because many young people aren't always directly involved with the bank. What do they say? It's like only a third, like barely, almost a third of yeah. them don't, don't have a bank account or even a credit card. And then a good number of them don't go to church or, or don't have a religious affiliation, nor do they want to. Uh, you know, a good number of them question and challenge uh, government and, you know, political parties. Well, and, yeah, and they're not joining, like, you know, DTTs or RTCs. Exactly. They're not joining, like, rotary clubs. They're not That's joining all, all the things that would normally socialize you into a brand of politics. They're not joining. It's classic bowling alone. Yeah. It's back to Robert Putnam. And it's just getting bigger and bigger. So what do we do to get people more tied in, especially younger people? to be working within the institutions that they're trying to avoid or right. they're not even familiar with. You've got to find a way of tying them back in. Now, I know you've heard the big talk of considering an open primary, which is yes. controversial in Connecticut. Right now in Connecticut, we have closed primaries. But if we did an open primary, we could get maybe more people. But the concern can be for both parties that they could flip. And right. it could cause mayhem. This has been a big concern among <laughs> party loyalists on both sides of the aisle, right? But then there's also this concern about now, how formidable will, will these independent affiliated voters who decide that day to change, you know, decide yeah. to sign up for a party will stick with it? Right. That's the big debate. What do you think about, um, I know a few states do this, nonpartisan elections? Actually, New Jersey, where I lived before, they did yeah. a lot of nonpartisan elections, including Newark, which is what I studied there, and Cory Booker, for example, in Jersey City, where I lived prior. They did. Um, I think it's, it's good and bad. Uh, one, they normally did it in off years. Right. Right? And they purposely did it in May. But then a few people would show up in May because most people are like, there's an election in May. Who votes in May? <laughs> so that was a problem with, right. <laughs> with with those kind of elections. The other thing is, is that it also leads to a lot of candidates running. Yeah. So you might get something like uh, anywhere from, let's say, four to eight candidates running for mayor, which we saw in some of these cities. So you have to do a runoff, for example, in Hoboken and your city where I live prior. They had to do runoff elections, and sometimes few people would show up in the runoff election. So it's right. got its catch twenty two, and they would often run independent or Democrat, not Republican. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so one more, one more topic before we're done. I think sure. I'm going to go national politics okay. for a second. Yep. Uh, one of our senators is on the uh, judicial committee in the Senate. Certainly, uh, Senator Blumenthal. What do you think about the whole Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination? I think this Mess. has just been strung out for so long, and it's so depressing to watch this, to witness any of this um, for both sides. Uh, one, you know, the Democrats didn't didn't help things out by stringing along right. the initial investigations in the first place to wait until this last minute now, especially since, interestingly enough, today is the first day of the Supreme Court term, and that's why they were trying to rush this through. Um, the second thing is that, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that you start seeing many Republicans saying, that there's no need for another investigation when, in fact, some of these women have only come forward in the last month when they weren't there and they already did their investigation. Right. As opposed to reopening up and spending another week to doing it. So it is intriguing to put Flake in the middle of this now to be the one where he's the one who's deciding a lot of this. And yet, do we even know what's going on with Murkowski and, and Collins who are still waiting? Right. You know, so, and they're kind of stuck in that, that purgatory. They're in that, that middle well, I know. I know. On Friday, I was sitting at home with like a bowl of popcorn and just watching the political drama play out throughout the day. Because originally, it was they were just going to ram the vote through, 
And then and then Jeff Flake was like, well, I don't feel comfortable about this. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch, a couple of Republicans jumped on that once he said that we're going to delay the vote. But like it was all political theater. It was, and and it got a lot of attention, and clearly the cable news shows were on it, and uh, uh, it it's just so odd, you know. In my office, for example, um, you know, we were hearing it, and everybody was just in shock how they're debating about you know quarters and how to play quarters yeah. and how to do this and what kind of beer do you drink and all this, all these details we didn't need to know about, um, and that's what our politics has become now. It's just beyond gotcha moments. Right. It's now the point of saying. You know, we're going to get you now every time, and we're going to make it known to everyone about it. Um, and, and this is the direction we're going for just nominating the Supreme Court. This is really depressing. At the same time, I am concerned because it puts out a bad image about Republicans right. in that they're going to allow, you know, candidates to, to go this far without fully vetting them or at least allowing the process to just wait as opposed to ramming this through, you know, a week before. Do you think that this is a flaw of, like, the committee process? Is that one party basically controls what happens in the committee? That's a good argument. That's a very Barbara Sinclair <laughs> uh, definition of it. Blame the institution. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with you on that, but I think a lot of this is just it is just hyperpartisanship. Yeah, where more people are tied in, in really um, stressing their affiliation politically in well, terms of where things can go. I mean, your man Cory Booker's on there too. Absolutely, and he also politicized a lot of this too. I mean, and you got a lot of recognition for it. You can see who's running for president based on what's going on in that committee. Absolutely. But, you know, you know, they call this the U.S. Senate the nursery for presidents. <laughs> so it is a place where people, a lot of, you know, candidates will go, uh, but, you know, will be uh, before they become, uh, you know, presidential candidates. So it, it makes some sense, but it's just unfortunate. It's got to get this personalized and this political. So I think I think that's about it. Do you right. – I, I know you have a few – uh, a book or two out? Do you want to? Do you want to plug your books? Sure. I mean, beyond the, the book on Cory Booker, which I wrote about ten years ago, uh, you know, uh, post-racial change is going to come. Uh, and that stresses and follows Cory Booker politics and urban development in Newark. Um, you know, a book that came out back in February was just a reader. It was just put a, an anthology of New England politics, a democracy in New England, and that's just taking apart pieces from Lexis to Tocqueville and uh, anti-federalist papers to the book I mentioned to you about Isaacs Jackson, Model City Blues. Uh, and so we look at you know several cities to examine what takes place in New England and their problems and pitfalls and issues and concerns. So I really enjoyed putting that book together last year. I, I like that project more than I thought uh, because it's very reflective, especially in the introduction and the acknowledgments. Um, but it's something that I, I really kind of take pride in being a New Englander. Um, so I, I, I really like that book a lot. I, I know it's probably going to get no reads. <laughs> but if anybody out there is ever interested in New England politics or issues, it's, it's something I really enjoyed putting together. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank uh, you. Thanks for listening to Pints and Politicos. I would like to thank our guest, Professor Wharton. This show was produced by Bayo Baptry Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, music was provided by Audio Audix. And the show was edited by me, Tim Bristol. Please check us out on Twitter at Pints underscore Politicos and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Pints and Politicos.